I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis. And I am Adrienne Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles and love, emergent strategist, and pleasure activist paying rent in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. <sighs> Hi, sister. Hi, sister. How are you doing? How you <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go first? You want me to share? Mm, I can go first. I'm like, I'm, I'm definitely feeling heartsick over um, the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, mm-hmm. and. I'm feeling, I'm also fucking like on my period. It's a new Me moon. Me too. New moon. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, it sounds like you have had this experience too, but I've like finally synced with the new moon. Yes, I'm synced um, And I was synced with the full moon last year. So Me too. Sister. That's so weird. Amaze. Okay, Amazed. that's weird. Wow. So yeah, it's like it's like good to be synced and bleeding at the point that I'm supposed to be bleeding. Yeah. Um, but of course, I just you know, with the with all the ways that my body has changed over the last you know decade plus, hmm. um, it just it it happens. It feels different in my body now. You know, like four pregnancies later, hmm. um, it's just like. It, 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 it takes me out in a different way than it did when I was younger. Yeah. Um, and had less babies under my belt, I guess. Um, so I, I definitely feel fatigued and a little like tummy sick and, um, sleepy, like all of the things that like cocoon, (laughs) that cocoon feeling of like, I just want to be under a pile of blankets. Yes. Um, eating ice cream and pizza. Um, (laughs) Literal menu for the day. (laughs) So, and I did, I did eat ice cream and pizza last night under blankets (laughs) with my boo. And we watched um, episodes of um, the Jeopardy college championship, which is adorable. Oh my God, these teenagers it's like they are so sweet to watch um it's Mm. just yeah that little bit of like I don't know it feels like it almost even if it's like it was filmed last year it feels like a blast from the past so it's it has it has an air of was this filmed in the 80s I don't know you know (laughs) literally anything before the pandemic I'm like wow back when people just were up in each other's space look at this novel thing yeah Um, yeah how are you I'm great um I'm great I'm also in that um like period moment and just like I do feel, you know, early on in the pandemic, I was like, I don't think we should have to have our periods during the pandemic. And um, <laughs> it just feels pause. like, and I know, I'm just like, I think anything else that can pause um, should. And I don't have, um, mine also, you know, I think as I 
as I've gotten older, my period keeps changing what it means. And this time around, I've started to really welcome it because I'm like, ah, I cannot do anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I cannot do anything else but be A reason with. to cancel. Yes. And, you know, I have been watching the Nat Ministries post almost as a religious experience because she's really like, no one should be doing anything right now. There's a uh-huh. pandemic happening. Uh-huh. We should not be doing anything that is like normal stuff. We need to rest. This is too much. And I feel like that every day. And then when my period comes, it's like, that's when I will give myself permission <laughs> for the two days that it's like at the most intense to just be like, I am not capable for real, for real. Like, yeah. I just need to sit on the couch um, and watch a movie with my parents, or mm. I just need to lay in bed and be cared for. I need a hot water bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and tea. I have, um, I had mom freeze some pieces of my birthday cake. And so yes. I've been like defrosting one of them <laughs> every so often <laughs> and just being like, it's still technically my birthday as long as this cake is here. And my mom <laughs> got me a balloon that is like, it still absolutely looks like the day it was purchased. I don't know what kind of balloon this is. Helium balloons, man. That shit is. It's a whole nother level. And so I just technically, <laughs> I feel like the dining room is still celebrating me. So yeah. I'm not going to stop. So I'm not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Who am so, I to stop my own birthday who celebration? Who am I to stop my, I mean, celebrate me as long as it's needed. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I also will say um, getting the news about Ruth Bader Ginsburg last night was really, it was this feeling of, right, of course. I had this like immediate like, yep, of course. Like this is this is how this period of time is unfolding. Mm-hmm. And I felt a huge, I mean, just a rush of deep respect. Like this person had so many kinds of cancer and had such um, a conviction about how she held her role. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's so many things to say about this government and about the world and about these roles, but there's something about being that committed to the, to what you're doing. And staying in um, as long as, and just being like, I'm going to stay in. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like she and Chadwick Boseman were like on the same team somehow you know they were just like (laughs) i'm here to deliver a certain thing it's needed and i'm gonna do it to the last breath and um and it also just shows the precarity of our country which is it's so deep that like so much rests on this one 87 year old woman yeah right that that it's like oh my goodness like you know you're one of the last bastions of protection for so many different issues. And uh, I think, I think maybe that takes me into Flume of Rage realm. What? what? The, the Flume of, of rage. rage. The Flume of Rage! <laughs> <laughs> what in the fuck it is? Mm. Nope. Mm. That is nope. a full nope. nope. The Flume of Rage! The Flume of Rage! The Flume of Rage. What in the Flume of Rage? I feel like there's so many crises overwhelming all of us at the same time. So it's like she died and then there was an earthquake in California shortly thereafter. Um, and it was just, just boom, boom, boom. You know, it just keeps being like so, such a pace. And 
I feel rage about how uninformed the vast majority of us are about how our systems actually work. Hmm. So we have this critique of these systems. We know they're not quite working for us, but in so many ways, we still don't really understand how they work. And I think it's so intentional. I think it's so intentional that these, it's, it's like, oh, no one wants us to even comprehend how all of this works, because if we understood it all, we would divest in a lot of ways from the way that it's currently happening. And I think really begin to invest ourselves in new ways of governance, new ways of community relating and deciding things. Mm. Um, and so I, I feel that I'm like, oh, you can feel the long impact of underfunding social studies and like lessening history and like just moving away, away, away in the kind of education, like just on a basic scale level that everyone has access to of like, here's the world you live in. Here's how it functions. Here's what matters. Here's what your responsibility is inside of it. And uh, I feel that rage now because then what happens is it feels like it's on organizers to try to be doing all education yep. in addition to political education. <laughs> so I see like so many of my comrades who have these brilliant strategic points that they want to be making, but they're having to like be like, oh, but also there's there's three branches of government. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, here's here's what the judiciary does. And let and me like, send you the YouTube video about how a bill becomes a law. Yes. And then <laughs> Yes, right? Yeah. And I and it's like yeah. that so it's just that I think maybe the actual the the preci- precise point of rage is the amount of labor that an average organizer is expected it has to hold in order to even begin to move the rock, you know, that it's like, oh my gosh, like, like there's, it's just such a huge task. Um, And I see people being worn down by trying to do all of what's needed in order to get people to even see the conditions that they're in. And, you know, I think the little bastion or the little beam of light that comes into that is like, (laughs) <laughs> poor people understand <laughs> like <laughs> poor folks get it people who are actually like completely debilitated by the system they really really deeply understand how the system works in some ways better than anyone else the swath of people that seem to need the most educating are those who are like middle class mid-level education like went to schools and actually kind of like believed in that and like have moved along these paths and now there's you know you started to speak to it in one of our last episodes where you're like that, like double, uh, what did you call it? Double consciousness, double mindedness. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just this like, Oh, I just, I can't even believe this is happening. Like how could this happen? And it's like <laughs> a basic level of understanding. Yeah. How our government. And then works. like, so, once you see it, you can't yeah. unsee it. You yeah. Know? But only if you really see it, I've been yeah, thinking about that a lot it. about the, mm-hmm. like, just that, that famous quote from Arundhati Roy, once you see it, you can't unsee it, you know, mm-hmm. about, about systemic oppression. But then, um, 
but also reflecting on the amount of energy that does go into unseen, you know, yes. uh, particularly among those who like, who exist within the double-mindedness, <laughs> you know, that in order to uphold that double-mindedness, you have to put a lot of energy into, into unseen or not seeing things, not seeing the same information that's actually in front of you every single day. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so it's a question, a lot of that, that I would question just the, wow, that's like a, a lot of commitment that, and a lot of energy that people are expending and right. which actually brings me to my flume, mm. which is I'm really just increasingly getting very, very angry at people who aren't wearing masks. And that was going to be my other one. <laughs> <laughs> just like, um, and yeah. like, and the, the, and, and like on the one hand, I want to, I want to situate that behavior inside of a legitimately, um, right. All the, all these things related to science, medicine, epidemiology, best practices, all that stuff has been politicized, which has created, I think for some, a legitimately confusing atmosphere in which to try to make decisions. Um, Especially if you don't want to see, especially if you, don't, especially want if you don't want to mm-hmm. think about the ramifications of this virus in your life or in your family's life, or if you experience yourself as having not been impacted by right. all those things. Um, but I, I keep hearing that sort of refrain of, well, the information is changing all the time. And I'm like, nope, the information really isn't changing all the time. You know, what the the baseline foundational practices of safety for ourselves and others have not changed since the beginning of the pandemic. And they're not going to change, you know, just wear a mask, wash wash your hands, wear a mask. And and I think it it really, I was, I was as I am often want to do on Saturday morning, I was listening, watching the most recent broadcast of Democracy Now! <laughs> and and the show was featuring yes. an, an epidemiologist named Dr. Monica Gandhi, who was talking about just this incredible um, block that Americans are having around mask wearing um, and how we're, mm. that our, our, our country is the only country where we're seeing this level of resistance to mask wearing across society. Um, and that, right. <clears throat> and, and that, you know, obviously that's being fomented at the highest levels of government, but also has to do with a sort of like baseline difficulty in participating in civic society and, and thinking about, you know, she was, as she was advocating yeah. for like, you know, our messaging really has to change from protecting others to protecting yourself because that's how Americans orient. And that is, it's very, it's Uh, very painful and angering for me (laughs) to know that, that people need to hear it as being, to know that, that epidemiologists are looking at the situation and saying, we think that Americans really need to hear that this is best protection for themselves in order to make them do it. Like that is fucking sad. Wow. <laughs> that is fucking sad. It's so sad. It's so sad because I remember the messaging at the very beginning where it's like someone's grandmother and and, and it's sort of like the American like grandmother. Like, grandmother. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, fuck your kids, whatever. 
Um, and yeah, no, it's very disappointing. It's very disappointing. And, and the rage upgrades for me when I'm like, okay, well, if you aren't going to wear your mask, stay 10 feet away from me. Like follow the signs in the store that say, walk this way, not that way. Like the combination of behavior where it's like, I'm not only going to wear a mask, but I am going to get up in your face. I saw on the on Twitter. The Twitter. On the Twitter. And on the Twitter, I saw people actually like ma- a maskless march where these people went into Target or somewhere and pulled their masks off to march. And it's just like, ah, uh, really, you know, I always want to feel like, oh, you know, there's not evil, there's just misguidedness. But it's so interesting to see, you know, I mean, you and I grew up part of our our childhoods in Germany. And, you know, I always think back to living there and being like, gosh, you know, we're we're interacting with people and they're so kind. And these are also the same, the descendants of the people who enacted the Holocaust, right? And I feel like that here right now. And I know there's there's some interesting memes going back and forth about like, well, Nazis learned that eugenic stuff from mm-hmm. us and like, well, you know, like the back and forthness of it all. And I feel that here where there's all these people where I'm like, what you're doing right. in a daily and practice genocidal. is evil. And, but you in genocidal and it's not hyperbolic to say so. There's enough bodies in the morgue that are don't need to be there. It's It's a real thing. And you're still laughing and acting like it's a joke and acting like it's normal. So can I say something about the flume plume? Yes. You can say something about it. And also at some point I want us to have flumes that are lighter rage, but I just, it's like, I can't see, I'm like so angry each week when we get to that part. (laughs) So yes, but flume plume. One of our listeners um, informed me via social media about the, they posted this. Have you watched the Challenger series on Netflix? There was a refusal by NASA to admit there was a flame coming out of the rocket booster before the explosion. They insisted on calling it a plume. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? Oh my goodness. This plume okay. thing is just, it, so this there's, there's, thing. More, there's more than meets the eye on the plume and the flume. <clears throat> this is fascinating because the, you know, when we looked it up, because after we did, we decided not to do this oh research God. until after the first episode <laughs> came out. Um, but plume is like a long, soft feather, part of an animal's body that resembles a feather, a long cloud of mm. smoke or vapor that resembles a feather, um, or a column <laughs> of magma. I think that's what I was thinking of. Um, Definitely column of magma. Yeah, I was column of very, magma. very scientifically. Magma. And then <laughs> the you're. I mean, then that's you. Um, whereas the flume is a deep, narrow channel or ravine with a stream running through it, and. I always right. think a flume is being fired. And then, and then so, hearing this thing about NASA being think, like, oh, plume was this word that they applied specifically to not talk about flame mm-hmm. is like fascinating. <laughs> exactly. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. It's very interesting. So 
I'm glad in that we're doing what we're doing in in public here. This is going to be a show that is heavy from start to finish mm-hmm. in or at least from start to pop culture, top culture, um, because we want to talk about what's happening right now. And the only way we can talk about what's happening right now is if we really turn and face um, how to be with terror and how to be with grief. And um, we want to recognize that these are apocalyptic times. These are revolutionary times. We started the show because of times like these, um, anticipating times like these and wanting to be ready. And it feels like right now, here we are in terror. Um, So we wanted Mm -hmm. to spend some time with how do we turn and face terror and give ourselves some context for it. And we have a special guest who's going to be joining us a little later in the show. Yeah. um, To give us some thought it might be, it might be helpful. Do you mind if I go ahead and just like take a first crack? Yeah. Here's where we are. (laughs) Um, I was going to say, tell us where we are. I think that, you know, one of the (laughs) things we wanted to do is just kind of ground in, um, you know, what, what is actually happening right now? And obviously there's been since the election in 2016, there's been a, um, a progressive unveiling of the, the way that infrastructure of white supremacy is alive and well within um, the United States government, Mm. within various um, institutions of U.S. society. Um, And I think that that part of part of what we've seen inside that progressive unveiling is um, a sort of like deepening awareness and understanding among those who consider themselves maybe uh, uh, liberal to progressive, like on the the political spectrum of liberal to progressive, deepening awareness and understanding that um, that there's a, a part of society that they have chosen not to take seriously, that they have chosen to orient to as sort of a joke or not a serious threat. Um, an, a, an, a, an element of society that deeply subscribes to white nationalism that is armed, that is um, organized. And that I think that like there's a, the liberal to progressive side of society that's finally starting to turn and orient to the threat that is actually posed by armed uh, by an armed white nationalist movement. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the things that's unfortunate about where we are in this yeah. moment is that it's taken people so long and folks have been so slow to actually turn and orient and see what's actually happening. Um, and I think the other thing that has been slow, um, again, inside of the sort of like liberal to progressive end of political movements in the country has been... It's, we've been slow to make the connections between various forms of st- state-sanctioned violence against Black and brown bodies and these um, armed militias, these white nationalist groups that are organized. We've been slow to recognize the level of cross-membership that exists between these bodies, right? The 
um, the number of people who are both members of armed militias, members of white nationalist organized groups, and are also members of the police. Um, So people are finally starting to kind of understand the level of of organization that has existed on this end of society and that some of the things that we've oriented to over the last 30, 40 years, um, you know, I'm thinking like the Oklahoma city bombing or, um, others, what we would consider lone wolf acts of, um, domestic terrorist violence. Um, I think there's been a kind of collective failure to recognize that even that the lone wolf domestic terrorist is part of their strategy. Um, so that's part of what's happening, right? So we've got, we've got that happening and then, and then overlaid on that already very, um, fragile, um, very fragile and very deeply American, um, infrastructure. We now have um, climate catastrophe very actively, very quickly unfolding um, at a speed and at a scale that many scientists weren't predicting would happen for another 10 to 15 years. Um, and, and then overlaid on that, we have this pandemic um, and the way the pandemic both, you know, sweeping across society, the thing we were just describing in the flume of rage of like our, our country being particularly inept in managing its way through the pandemic. Um, and, and also that long view reality that we've talked about in some of the other episodes of this show of, of having to really sit with the reality that this isn't even the big one. That, that, that inside of climate catastrophe, one of the other things that we're going to see more of is these kinds of viruses that come into, um, that, you know, come into contact with humans, specifically because of the way we are in relationship with animals in, in industrial agriculture, right? That, and, you know, this particular virus is, is, highly contagious and is um, deadly, but not deadly to most. And there have been other viruses that have been highly deadly to everyone who they come in contact with, but not highly contagious. And we have yet to experience a pandemic of a virus that is both, but the likelihood that we will is high. And so if we can't get this right, In, in terms of both a national response and a global response, um, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for us as a country yeah. for the pandemic that may come. So that's 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 how I would summarize what we're facing. Mm. Oh yeah, and then also the Supreme Court is in jeopardy. Thank you for the summary. Right, pulling it all together because it feels like this is the thing. This is the condition we're in right now. And I wanted to talk just briefly on like terror. What is terror, right? When we talk about it and it's extreme fear. And it's, it's when it's like, it's justified fear. It's, there's something that's going on and we can't find a way to find a balance, a grounding, like a, okay, here's how we're going to make our way through it. And 
we wanted to speak about this because so many folks, it's like we're either trying to be normal, go back to normal. How soon are we going to get back to normal? When can we get to normal? And this is a conversation that you hear even amongst people who are trying every day to um, deconstruct what is normal and make a way for freedom, make a way for equality, make a way for justice, make a way for a new world. But when we're on the precipice of all of this this system coming apart, what actually happens, what it actually feels like is, for many of us, extreme fear. Um, and that fear is of a lot of things. It's, is my body going to be okay? Are my children going to be okay? Can I protect my family? Many of us now know the answer to all of it is no, that we have already been through the experiences of many of us losing people that we love, not being able to protect the people that we love, not being able to make decisions that we know would be the best decisions for them. And um, something I've, I've been thinking about a lot and feeling into a lot is that the amount of terror and fear that people are feeling now is directly related to the amount of privilege that you have had in this society so far. So if you've had a lot of privilege um, or even a sort of base level privilege, then this is really, really, really upending you. Um, and now it's like, even if you have a lot of privilege, you're still facing new limitations on travel, new limitations on your safety, right? But for people who haven't had access to a lot of privilege, for trans folks, for immigrant folks, for Black male bodies, Black bodies, you know, there's been a lot of this targeting and this feeling of an instability, we're never safe, has been there. So I keep trying to remind myself of that, even though now it's like, well, now it's everyone. And that is a different feeling. It's a different experience. And, um, but I think it is important to also name that, that there are people um, who have, are more vulnerable, have been more vulnerable, and have been saying, y'all need to pay attention. There's a climate catastrophe. You need to pay attention. Our health is not um, being attended to the way it needs to. You need to pay attention. We're being killed. We're being attacked. And as that spreads, that fear grows. And a context that I thought would be helpful here is a global context. So um, that because we're such a young country in relative, you know, relative to all the other countries that exist, um, <laughs> we've been a young country, but also a superpower country. And there's a way that we center our story and it feels really impossible that it could go <laughs> in almost any other direction than global superpower forever um, right. as one right. united body. And so I thought it was just useful to say, we, you and I grew up um, half of our lives, basically, or at least for me, by the time I was 18, half of my life had been spent in Germany. I think for you, it was about similar. Like, yeah. Yeah. So we grew up half of our lives outside the U.S. as part of a U.S. military um, effort in Germany after World War II, right? The U.S. stayed. And so when I was young, I was in West Germany, right? It was still West Germany and East Germany. The Berlin Wall was still up. And while we were there, the USSR still existed. And um, our father was going for a period of time on missions to Yugoslavia. And 
um, you know, during all that time, the troubles were happening in Northern Ireland. And um, it feels important, you know, that was just the world that we were around and in touch with. And right. that's just Europe. That's just exactly. It was just like, <laughs> this is just a little bit, and it's not even all of Europe. It's just like the little right. parts that we were in touch with. And then as we've grown and like, look back, oh, also this whole thing was happening with Biafra and Nigeria. This whole thing was happening throughout the Middle East and going back, you know, for so long that we can't even really see the beginning of it. There's um, so many places that were once nations um, that no longer are considered those nations or were once federations of nations that are no longer considered that. There are so many or places. Were once colonized territories of nations exactly. that liberated themselves and exactly. that, that liberation process was required violent insurrection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Um, it feels so important to remember that other places and other peoples have stood on these same precipices. Of, yes. mm-hmm. Is there something here that unifies us together enough to stay as a nation? And if there is, what is it? How do we articulate it? And how do we uphold it as a standard that we fight for? And if there isn't, um, how do we challenge these structures and actually create new ones that can serve us? And uh, I think it's a worthwhile question for us to be in is, is the does the American experiment still make sense or make the most sense as the experiment that we want to be in? And mm. if it does, how what is the right relationship with this white nationalist, hyper-capitalist arm of the nation? Um, right. Is it, right, something like, in Nazi Germany, where it's like, we actually have to stop that arm. Like we have, that has to be put under control. Seceding would not be the move because it wouldn't <laughs> go far enough. This this fascism is global and it's spreading mm-hmm. and it's everywhere and we need to take accountability for it. Or is it, we need to split from it. It's done so much harm and it's armed and it's, right? So I think, I think it's, there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had in that realm. And there's also interesting conversations to say, well, do we just want to converge, you know, converge ourselves, partner with indigenous communities and figure out where are places where we can be in right relationship with indigenous land sovereignty and Mm -hmm. find black land sovereignty, brown land sovereignty, like, and, and actually just say there's, we want to create some safe experimental spaces to grow. Right. Liberated autonomous zones. Exactly. So that's, you know, like the question I keep sitting with is the difference of what is a path that leads us towards a Zapatista future where many universes are possible, many worlds are possible, and we are fomenting our freedom and learning with each other. And what is a path that keeps us like we are now powerlessly being moved along a genocidal um, conveyor belt? Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's multiple paths available. Uh, but those right. feel like the sort of polar components of it. And to me, it, it feels super important to be like, we're not the first country in the whole world. We will not be the last country in the whole world. And we're not the first place to have this deep of a values divergence um, that's turning us against ourselves. And so yes. putting ourselves in that context, I think we can help us face this terror. Yes. And, and then it, 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 it feels, I know that this is something that you and I have, have um, been talking about together for many years, been talking about on this show for many years, that it is 
next to impossible to engage that conversation, to really engage that conversation if we remain stuck inside of a state of being completely overwhelmed by the conditions, which is part of why we wanted to, you know, bring this conversation into the show today. Yes. uh, To know that what are we experiencing right now? We're experiencing the sense of being overwhelmed by terror and overwhelmed by grief. That's right. And when we are overwhelmed by terror and overwhelmed by grief, we enter a free state. You yes. know, we, we our tendency will be to collapse, mm. to resign, to yes. dissociate, to in to cope instead of acting, mm-hmm. instead of making decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think back to the conversation that um, I had with um, with the queer nature folks during the Apocalypse Survival miniseries mm-hmm. and the, the OODA loop that they yes. described, you know, the... Um, People should I'm go back remember. and listen to that if they didn't. It, right. <laughs> and there's, there's the, the, the steps of the OODA loop are, you know, to observe orient decide act yes <laughs> right that 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 part of what we have to do and you know and they were talking about how easy it is to become overwhelmed inside of a survival situation and that these are the steps that we use in order to take ourselves out of that state of overwhelmed freeze dissociate yeah. and actually be able to act that we have to pause observe our surroundings orient ourselves in time make a decision and then act. And those are actually discrete steps in a process. And I keep thinking about, well, how do we actually, how would we apply something like that? Like our OODA, what is our OODA loop for, you know, October, November, 2020? Yeah. What what is our OODA loop for January, 2021? You know, how are we, how are we actually, um, you know, as, as you were saying, um, before we hopped on this call, like how are we moving, how we, how are we uh, coming to awareness of our fear and then moving inside of our fear yeah. together towards something that we actually want to survive? Right. Like I think this is, you know, we're always trying to honor Octavia Butler in our work, but I think this is the thing that she always was teaching us was like, we have to make compelling futures. We have to be compelled by destiny. Like there has to be problems that are interesting to solve. There has to be a sense that something can be done. Mm-hmm. And I think when we get frozen by terror, part of it is that we're taking in all of it at once and trying to mm-hmm. then be like, oh, in my observation, I have oriented myself into a complete spinning top. Like I'm trying to look in every direction at how bad it all is. And I think there is something about learning how to orient towards what can I do? Right. What can I do? What is possible for me? What am I skilled at? What do I long for? Who do I want to do this with? especially as we head into these next, as you, as you mentioned, these phases, because there Mm -hmm. are some people who the move that they need to be making is direct action. Like there's, there's a very good likely case that we are going to have to shut it all down, like, and be willing to truly be on general strike, truly stop business as usual, truly make it impossible to continue. Um, Because the other side of terror 
I was looking up the definition of it. They call a child a terror. Like when someone is in a tantrum and throwing a fit, it's that child is a terror. And I'm like, we have that as a president right now. We have a terror, a tantrum thrower, someone who will not play fair, someone who will not give up. Um, So on those levels of terror, there's people who are going to have to fight. There's people who are going to have to protect. And I think those people shouldn't be judging each other, right? Like there's people who are like, I can't go out into the streets and where white militia are armed. I've got to stay and like protect the kids. And those communities need to be in conversation at a very intimate level. This has got to be community by community by community in these conversations. And everyone's got to go out and actually vote because that's still one of the most viable strategies we have for lifting some of the weight of this terror and, and, and. And we have to stop. Yes. It's like we have to. I was hearing you say this in another conversation about everyone needs to be making a safety plan for the election time period, not just election night, but like the, the time period around the election. Yeah. And so it's like, we have to be making our safety plans neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block, house by house crew. We have to be, who's your crew. Mm -hmm. We have to be making our plan for how we're voting. And we also have to stop orienting to the election as this point in time when we are going to suddenly feel some relief, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, yes. there's, there's a lot of directions that we, that things might go uh, as of the moment of the election and when the results are determined. And uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of diverging paths and a lot of it, depending on what your geography is, but there's a high likelihood we will end up in a civil war kind of condition. Yes. Right? And so we have to stop, you know, we have a, we have an acting, acting, we have a a pretending, (laughs) we have a president who is, you know, encouraging these armed militias to quote unquote, protect their country if the result is not what he deems it to be or what he believes will be fair. And so, so like, there's a lot of things that, you know, and and again, it's like, I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer here. I'm just, no. I'm trying to be pragmatic, right? It's right. like, we, this is not, we're not, we're not heading into safety. Um, yes. Well, and, and I think there has to be a real uh, kind of reality check around, around that, like, what is the needs assessment given some of the variables that we're working with? Yeah. And I think also looking at Like the vulnerable populations now are going to also be the vulnerable populations in that period. So those, you know, the armed Mm. militia have really been targeting Black trans people, targeting people who they can look at and say, you look queer to me, targeting people with disabilities, targeting people who, uh, you know, Black people, depending on where you are, targeting brown people, targeting immigrants, right? This has been happening and it's been increasing. They've been targeting protests, driving into protests, shooting people, killing people at protests. Like all of that is on the uptick. And, you know, I had someone uh, tweet at me recently, like, you know, you say what you pay attention to grows and like, don't give him all this power. Don't give the president this much power. Like, you know, cause I had said I was angry about it. And for me, this is one of those moments where it's like, what you pay attention to grows. We need to pay our, we need to make sure our attention is on reality 
and that we are growing plants that will actually get us through this period of time. Mm-hmm. And it's not a time to look away and be like, oh, just garden. You know, I'm like, cool. Like garden, <laughs> gardening, I mean, actually, gardening is fantastic. And mm-hmm. um, be gardening in a way that you're about to like feed a pot of people who otherwise need to not leave their home because they need to be hungered <laughs> down hibernating, right? Like basically yeah. it's like tying it all together. Like there is a position for everyone to play right now. And one of the things, you know, maybe we can start to move in this direction of talking about the grief part of it, because one of the things I think that happens is this is a terrifying time, but part of what we're so scared about is that we're losing people that we love and losing Mm. things that we love, places that we love, homes are burning that we love, places are trees that we love are gone. Like there's so much to grieve. There's so much to grieve and we don't really know how to grieve. And we, we keep having this way of articulating it. It's like, how are we all going to get there? How are we all going to get through this? And I think what we're seeing now is we're not going to all get through this. And I was saying this um, to Prentice. I did a podcast with Prentice and it was like, we are losing people already. We will continue to lose people. That is true. Death is a part of life. Death is a part of the human experience. And right now we are in a period of a lot of increased grief, faster death, unnecessary. It's hard. And we are not all going to make it together. But what I do know for sure is that none of us are going to make it alone. This is not a time of the lone wolf. This is not a time of the individual successor, you know, survivor mode. This is how do we get really good at being in relationship? This isn't Matt Damon's time. This is not Matt Damon on Mars. <laughs> this is humans trying to keep our species intact, keep our species right. moving forward, whether it's in these borders or not. We have to really, to me, I think the more we can relinquish our concept of the founding fathers America and move mm-hmm. into what do we have here? And is there something that can actually move forward? And I think part of being in good relationship is knowing that we can grieve well, that when we yeah. do lose people, we grieve them beautifully and right. we honor their lives. We honor the lessons of their mm. lives. Well, it feels like a good place for us to bring in our guest because yeah. I don't know anyone who grieves better yeah. than Malkia Devich Sorrell. It's true. I love Malkia so much. And Malkia is a dear friend and someone who has in many ways created community that that has helped others grieve, has helped me grieve. Um, officially, Malkia founded and then recently retired from the Center for Media Justice after being there forever, ever. Um, forever. And is like basically a media policy and strategy genius. But Mac is also someone who's gone through a ton of intimate loss and intimate grief and found a way to uh, make almost an organizing principle of being Mm. good at grief. And so we invited Mac to join us um, to talk about grief. Yeah. Malkia, we are so grateful that you had a moment to sit down with us and we wanted to ask you, basically the conversation we're in is about terror and grief and how 
part of what is so scary in this moment is having to face death and how ill-prepared we are to face it and how to move through grief and how very little time and space um, our culture, our society gives us and each other um, for moving through those things. So we wanted to bring you in because I see you as the kind of guide, like a light, you know, shining this light on like, hey, y'all, this is a part of life. This is a part of my life. This is a part of all of our lives. And you're either there or you're going to be here. And, um, you know, and you have done a beautiful job of creating uh, both an honest cauldron and container for speaking about your own grief and spaces for people to be in grief together and feel the joy inside of life together. So I think just to start, could you tell us a little bit about how you have become someone who knows so much about grief? Well, um, you know, the, the story is long and not unlike the story that many many Black people in America um, walk with and and really Black people all around the globe, but um, I, I faced a lot of death in, in my life. And, um, you know, um, there's the, there are the deaths that have been kind of, um, you know, that have been, uh, that have run throughout my life, you know, like friends. Um, I had a girlfriend who was killed when I was 16, you know, um, cousins, you know, uh, my cousin BJ, my cousin and Juzy, my cousin Giovanna, my cousin Athena, all of whom were killed by accidents, domestic violence, gun violence, you know, mm. the gamut, all of it. But but I'd say the real, um, the, the deep and, 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 and lasting uh, relationship that I've had with grief mm. has been um, two, two people, my mother, who uh, had a lifelong um, genetic illness uh, called sickle cell anemia, yeah. which many Black people have, and others from Mediterranean um, countries, and um, and 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 uh, my wife Alana, who died mm. from from uh, advanced cancer uh, in 2018, and so kind of like my whole life, I lived with the the fear of loss, you know, anticipatory grief that grief that comes before the actual death. Uh, and I lived with the actual death. I was the person who was there when my mother was, when my mother died. Um, I was with her and I was with my mm-hmm. wife when she died. Um, and so I think that the combination of like, you know, and besides these kind of facts, these were also two individuals that were, were very, um, you know, shaped me, basically, shaped me as a person in, in extraordinary ways. Um, and I was extraordinarily close to both of them. So so grief is definitely a cornerstone of my life. Um, loss is definitely a, uh, a very big part of who I am. I'm really grateful for your willingness to talk about this. I feel like it's it's so rare. To me, it's so rare to be around people who are willing to speak about the grief that they're experiencing and walking with. And what I I want folks to hear from you, some of the things I feel like I've learned from you, is what do you wish people understood about death and grieving? 
I think a few things, you know, I think, you know, number one, that death is a part of life, it's natural, but the deaths that we have been subject to as oppressed people, they're unnatural. Um, and that, you know, deaths that are coming too early, deaths that are unequal, that we have an unequal relationship to death and loss, um, that's not natural. That's not okay. Um, I think that I want people to understand that when you live with generations of colonial terror, mm. that you will fall subject to generations of colonized grief. Oof. And that part of our our work is to decolonize our grief, um, take it out of the hands and, 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 and imaginations of our oppressors and, and free it, you know, let, mm. let, let our grief be free, freely to free to be a part of, of, of our daily life, free to be part of the things we talk about. Um, I want people to understand that um, uh, loss is complicated you know, and it gets more and more complicated the more people you lose. Mm. But it's also complicated by whether or not you have the right and the and the freedom and the resources to process it and to, to manage it, to navigate it. Mm. Um, those people, for example, who are working as essential workers right now, um, and I'm talking all the all of them, doctors, but really a lot of the nurses, you know, I'm talking about nurses and, you know, frontline uh, medical staff. I'm talking about care workers and homes and, you know, but working class people for the most part, you know, where do, do those institutions provide them with any services to navigate the grief that they're absolutely going to experience watching death after death after death? Hmm. No, because they're expecting, they're expecting because because workers and people who produce for other folks are expected to carry the burden of whatever that looks like. So death, when death is part of that, that productive process, you know, when you're caring for the human body and you know that death is going to come, you know, you're caring for dying people, the expectation is that you're just supposed to deal with that, you know, and you're not supposed to get nothing extra, no extra services. So there's a whole set of people, you know, and whether that's because of your racial position in the world or because of your class position or your gendered position, mm. where your grief is disenfranchised, right? It's less important. Right. You're supposed to carry it without speaking about it. Right. You're not supposed to you're not supposed to stop what you're doing. You're supposed to keep working. You're supposed to keep going. And um and I think that we've learned that that is natural. So we walk with grief as a natural part of our daily life. Mm. And we don't even recognize that that's what it is. We think that's part of our personality. And wow. I know it to be true, because I know that's true for me. Mm. Thank you so much, Malkia, for, for just the clear naming of, of that reality. Um, and inside that clear naming, I, I hear also a longing for a different reality, you know, and, and I also feel like I've seen you, um, since the pandemic began, take, a, a role in crafting that other reality or trying to create yeah. space for this other reality. And I'm wondering if you could talk about pandemic joy 
and what that space is, what inspired you to create it and who, who are, who is invited into it? Like what happens inside that space? Where, um, thanks for asking about it. Uh, you know, so pandemic joy is like a weekly, uh, a gathering on Sundays, um, virtual gathering and, um, who's invited to it is, is friends, friends and family. It's not an open public event. Um, and the reason for that is that I believe that in this time and, and really in every time, but especially now, um, when, <laughs> when isolation, uh, and, and really fear of dying, fear of being ill. Right. I don't, right. I don't want people to even walk next to me. Right. Cause I'm scared that they gonna you know, what you're looking at, you know, you passing the virus, you know, in my direction, I don't want you to breathe towards me. Right. And so mm-hmm. that under those conditions where we're terrified of each other, um, you know, we need to find ways to be connected. And so I know that's what I needed. So for me, you know, I was dealing with profound grief. Um, my wife had, had died, but also I spent the year after my wife died caring for you know, my, mm. um, my god sister, and then my friend who, who also died of cancer uh, a year later. And so, um, and so I, I needed something, I could not go into this pandemic, right, just isolated and alone, you know, I just couldn't go from having people staying at my house with me, because I was terrified to be alone, to them being completely and totally alone. So I decided to create a, uh, a time when, when we could come together and it grew over time. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the way it is now. It wasn't that way as, at, at the beginning. But, you know, we, we sing, we use song um, to, to express ourselves. Um, we, um, we fellowship, you know, um, we talk about how we're feeling and what's going on. Um, you know, we meditate. Uh, and then we hear from various, you know, mm. I don't even want to call them experts, but various people that that have done a lot of thinking about this question around grief and 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 and, and life, you know, um, you know, loss and and fellow and connection and community, all all of these questions about how do we belong to each other, how do we belong to the land, how do we stay connected, and so that's how that goes. Um, and uh, and I guess I would say about it, the, the last thing I'll say about it is, um, um, you know, people people be saying to me like, oh, you 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 do you do so much for for the community, or you do this for them, or do that for other people, and I and I try to explain like, no, this is a mm-hmm. very selfish venture, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. This this was for me, you know. This was like let me gather mm-hmm. with the people that I love and care about, so that I don't feel alone. And it was based on the ass- assumption that if I need it, mm-hmm. so does somebody else, you know. And that's a difference between this is not this is there's no martyrdom. I love here. that. No, I love I'm not that. doing right. anything for anybody else, you know. I'm I'm just creating opportunities for us to be together. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean, and that's for me. That's right. You know, that's for me, and, and we, you know, everything we do, we get something out of it. And when we don't acknowledge that, then that leads to other, you know, negative dynamics. I'm not interested in. I've been doing that for 20 years. I'm not trying mm. to do that no more. <laughs> this this right here, this next piece of my life, is mm-hmm. for me. 
<laughs> you know, it's for me. So that's that's about that. I I love yeah. I love hearing that Malkia, and I because I do feel like um, for anyone who's in a in a martyrdom <laughs> practice, I do feel like <laughs> I do feel like there's something about going through a deep loss that turns that on its head. You know, it's like. And I don't know that I would have thought about it that way until you just said that. Um, but there is something I feel like about about being in grief and walking with grief that um, we we it, it, it's like we have to turn and face the reality that we're not actually going to rescue anybody and we're not going to be able to rescue ourselves and that that's not that can't be the goal or the purpose of our lives. <laughs> right. And so we actually have to live. Um I mean, that's the thing. The purpose of life is life. Mm -hmm. And that's the big lesson for me is like, I've been a, I've been a controlling person and, you know, the loss of control breeds control, you know, and a need for control. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I've, I've wanted to control my environment, you know, because of how, 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 you know, control and agency was taken from me, you know, at a young age. But what I've understood in this in this process of first losing my mother and then losing my wife and so many friends and family members is that I don't control shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't control a damn thing. You know, cancer was not interested in anything I had to mm-hmm. say. And so uh and so I, I realized that we just have to um we have to live, you know. That's why we went to brunch. You know, even when when my baby had to be in a wheelchair, or you know, uh, when she was when she was um, uh, going unconscious in the middle of the restaurant, you know, we still went to dinner. We still went to brunch. Uh, we played heads up all the time in the hospital room. You know, we uh, we had all kind of healing events, drumming and laying hands, and we sang all the time mm-hmm. and we we had fun every single day even the days that were mostly spent crying we still had a lot of laughter in them and i believe in that i believe that 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 finding that joy you know that's the whole point of living mm-hmm. there ain't no other point <laughs> <laughs> that's it i feel like this has been um, you know, I'm a member of the Pandemic Joy community, and it's something that, as, as a part of it, it's something that I wish for everyone. It's something that I wish for everyone. Not that there's some massive, big, huge church thing that everyone's part of, but that there's tons and tons of these small, intimate yeah. spaces where people get to be in community and seen and felt and heard and that there's a rhythm of weekliness it feels like octavia butler's earth seed like that there every week there should be a gathering of earth seed to be with each other and that that's it's something that helps us feel belonging inside of life um yeah absolutely you know yeah i know that we had a brief moment a brief window together but i feel like any moment i ever have with you i think any moment we as humans get to hear from you as leader as um, thought leader as someone who is le- living their experience out loud and letting others learn from it is such a blessing. And so I just, I wanted to thank you from us and from our listeners in the future who get to hear this um, for the wisdom that you just dropped on us. 
Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Malkia. We are so grateful that Mac was with us. And um, Mac's time is so precious. Like, Mac's time is some of the most precious time of any human on Earth. So we're really grateful that Mac could join us. Um, And we didn't want to leave, even though this is a heavy episode, we didn't want to leave without some time on Top Culture. Because Top Culture is helping us survive and move through everything. And... One of the other things I was going to say during my flume of rage is that everything's moving so fast that it always feels like everything's out of date almost as soon as you say it. <laughs> um, right. Uh, social media is the it's worst. It's the worst. Um, but that, because I, I would say that's a social media effect. That's a social that's media effect. Reality. It's just like, meow. but <laughs> I think one thing that makes a top culture top is that it doesn't matter how long you wait to get to it. It's that top. That it's just, it's, it's always so worth top. the experience. It's so tough. And so mm-hmm. we are months into living in a world in which Black is king. And <laughs> it just feels like I want us to give um, some time and attention and love to Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter's um, masterpiece project. Um, and Autumn, yeah, can we just spend a little time on? Yeah, let's do a little bit of time on this. And, you know, and I feel like there's part of me that just wants to give you the floor because I know you've watched it <laughs> like at least five times. I'm probably, probably more than oh, that, I'm guessing. Yeah, that 15. Um, yeah, okay. So that's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've only watched it the one time and it was, you know, it was just the one. Um, and I, I felt, uh, you know, so for me, it, it's it's like I don't even have a commentary on it. It's more like, wow, oh, that, hey, you know, like that was more my experience. I mean, I definitely <laughs> remember feeling like I remember feeling like it was like a really slow start. It was like almost too slow for me, but I was like, I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it because I know that like my my fave songs from the from the Lion King soundtrack are coming I know that like the you know the the keys to the kingdom is coming Um, so you know but for sure it, it felt it was so beautiful to see the way the creative team gave life to um these songs that have like been in the culture for you know over a year now or about a year now um and of course the one of the things that I love in Beyonce's work is whatever she takes some like racist shit and then like repurposes it into her work (laughs) in this like so and that was one of the things for me with brown skin girl like watching everyone Mm. like decked out in this debutante um Mm. the costume of like the southern debutante Um, which is such a like racist and sexist like custom and to to see the creative team behind this project repurpose the imagery of that um, Mm. and into this like celebration of like like motherhood sisterhood daughterhood (laughs) like um, just like skin black girlhood rich and like black femme realness was like um I just I love those I love the I love it when she does those kinds of reversals and um 
um, also felt like a lot of love for the um, some of the really tender presentations of of the challenges of black masculinity, mm-hmm. um, the challenge of, of for, for, you know, that the main character that you're following through the story really experiencing fear, terror, lack of belonging, mm. um, experiencing being haunted um, by loss, you know, experiencing finding love. <laughs> and like, there was just a lot of tenderness in, in the way that character's arc is presented. Um, so I, I, I really appreciated that, you know, mm. I really appreciated that. Life is a set of choices. Does your father know you are here? Lead. I'm left in the face of danger. Or be led astray. Run away and never return. Follow your light. Or lose it. I... I love everything you said about <laughs> about the work. And, um, you know, to me, Beyonce is such an invitation all the time to take up creative space, like to take up space with your creative freedom. And where she's just like, whatever I did last time, I'm not doing that now. Now I'm doing this. And I'm going to bring my full, deep attention to this. And I feel like that with each of, you know, like if I do my scholarship around her work, then I'm like, oh, like with Lemonade, she was like, I'm going all the way into this heartbreak and I'm coming back out, like transformed. And I'm going to now, you know, for HBCUs, I'm going to like go all the way in and do my homework and everything's going to be right. The costumes are going to be right. Everything's going to be right. And so for this, it's like, I'm going to trace my own lineage and I'm going to do it correctly. Like I'm going to do it right. And what that looks like is I'm going to engage artists that many of you have never even heard of before. And I'm going to uplift them as the sounds. And then those sounds are going to shape what this sounds like, which is such a radical act to do with Lion King in the first place. Like just the idea of like Lion King is set in Africa, but Elton John is the person who's singing the song is, you know, it's like one of those things you're like, oh, wait, like why? You know, because Disney, right? And so she's like, actually, you're, it's going to be, it's going to be artists from the continent who are going to be the sound of this journey. Like fundamentally, that's the first thing. Those are going to be the dances that we're doing. That is the culture of what this story actually is. And it's our story. We're all Simba in this. We're all people who were given some kind of gift and then displaced from that gift and distracted by the world and then returned to right our deeper spiritual calling. And I love that throughout the work, she is Simba. Her husband is Simba. Her children are Simba. Like she just keeps showing us everyone gets to be on this journey of losing yourself and rediscovering yourself. And, um, and that, you know, she weaves in so many of the lessons. Like I always love, you know, I always love when she drops something because it's like, there's the Beyonce, there's the entire huge, huge, huge body. People are like, Beyonce has given us a gift. Thank you. Oh, oh, 
dear king, queen, everything to us. And then there's the entire industry of haters who then run directly towards the work as well and say, pay for it. They want, cause I'm like, if you don't have Disney plus, you're not seeing this, right? She's like, this is for people who want to see this. So it's like, okay, so you came looking for her, right? And, and you came to find her in order to be like, here's my critique. And I think that those people get just as much joy from coming and getting to critique her as we're getting from coming and getting to just celebrate what she's created. Um, but I also love that, that it's like, so many people try to come for this piece of work for so many different <laughs> reasons. And then I watched it happen, like where then people actually saw it and were like, oops. <laughs> well, I just won't say anything else. Cause I'm like, she covered, you know, so many bases in this work. Right, and, right. Um, you know, I know that there's a whole body of people who would love for Beyonce to just disappear. Right. Like her, she challenges so much fundamentally her power. Um, her the way that she carries herself and the fact that she's like makes so much bank doing it (laughs) you know I think that people really struggle and I think it's very fascinating it's like people really struggle with folks succeeding inside of systems that they did not create and I with black people struggling particularly inside these systems and I'm really curious and interested to see what this looks like as it continues to grow and continues to translate forward because uh. she continues to get more and more interested in stuff that's like the mainstream may or may not like this right like the mainstream may or may not be ready for a deep dive into african music and culture but right. that's what i'm interested in so that's where i'm going right and i'm interested to see how far she goes i wanted to uplift all the thick and dark-skinned and rich bodies that were in this work uh. um like it feels like she keeps listening, you know, and being like, okay. And Beyonce herself, this is one of the most thickest, beautiful presentations yeah, of her own it's, body it's, it's that the, I feel like we've her seen. Her body looks really, really different in this. It's wondrous, work, right? And like, I feel like especially so in luscious. the wake of Homecoming. Because mm-hmm. Homecoming, she was like, yeah, I busted my butt <laughs> after having these babies and I got down to, you know, whatever I had been like in high school or something. Right. And it was like, she was like, I'm never doing that again. And then we see her. Yeah. So thick and mm. absolutely glorious. And then I love the science fictionality of it. Yeah. The Afrofuturism like, that's like exactly. embedded in the whole thing. Yeah. Yes. I feel like I, I, it's funny with the critiques. Cause I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, obviously I feel like everyone has the right to, you know, whatever feelings they have, but, (laughs) but there's some part of me that's like, just like your energy is, your energy is really like going, like, I look at that and I'm like, if you could just spend like 10% of the Mm. energy that you spend on critiquing and hating our people Mm. and direct it at Jeff Bezos. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like Jeff Bezos has become <laughs> exponentially more wealthy during the pandemic. Oh my God. Like so wealthy. Go hate him and go feel yes. like go do <laughs> no hate, maybe not hate, but like go take your critique and put it where it actually fucking matters. That's like mm-hmm. my invitation to everybody right now. <laughs> I'm just like, how about 
instead of like turning your like vitriol critique and nastiness on like those folks who are like producing beautiful cultural work or are yes. like producing <laughs> meaningful experiences for people, go put your critique on the folks who are actually damaging our planet and are damaging exactly. our economy and are exploiting exactly. workers. Like, it's just like, please, like what, yes. it, to me, it's like, a, it's like the definition of like horizontal violence personally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's so, it always makes me so, it's so sad to me, right, too, because I'm just like, oh, this person has made jobs. Like, she's just gone and created a ton of work for a bunch of people who are very, very happy to have it, and like, very, very happy to be dancing with her and singing with her and, like, uplifting, seeing their culture uplifted by her. And um, and I'm like, that's, that's who you want to, as soon as she comes out or before she even gets out, you want to say, you know, I saw all kinds of stuff. People are like, I, I just don't see why she had to be in it. <laughs> I can't remember when I saw this, but I'm like, um, wait, so <laughs> you don't see why a black woman would need to like put herself in work that she had written, produced, directed, and created. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I'm just like, I was, I try so hard. Cause I'm like, I, I, when I read critiques of her work, I also try to imagine like which black men would receive these critiques which white men would receive these critiques? Like who else do we feel comfortable speaking of in this way? Cause I'm like, it's absolutely, it's always fine to critique someone's art, but with her, it rarely feels like they're critiquing the art. It really feels like so often it's a critique of just who she is as a person and how she chooses to live her life. And I'm like, Hmm, why? Right. Right. And I'm like, just, why don't you go like again 10% of the oh, energy on oh Woody God. Allen? Like there's just so many other people that you can I go love spend that. There's on. there's literally that's all um, all insane. Just like take a percentage of it, just a portion of it, and go put it, you know, on like a pedophile or someone who is a rapist yes. or like, you know, someone who has like persistently violated labor law. I'm just imagining that there's a lot of people out there. <laughs> anyway it's so good and you know I don't want to be anti-critique you know I don't because I'm like there's things that make sense to critique there's things that make sense to critique it's not my mode right so I'm like if you're gonna do it do it well do it accurately and do it once a project is actually out right and so you can you know for sure that like the thing that you're critiquing is actually happening and I feel like that's one of the things that's been happening lately is people be like I haven't seen it yet and I don't know but here's what I think and I'm like no yeah <laughs> that's not a valid way to critique yeah you know just wait uh, the critique that 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 begins with I don't know anything about this but Yes, but blah, blah, then I'm like, mm. am I right? <laughs> so anyway, right. this ended up becoming a critique of critique, and that's fine too because fuck that. <laughs> okay, so I will keep it short. But here's the thing I want to say about her on an overarching note, which is I believe that she keeps raising the bar. And to me, one of the most fantastical things she's ever done is the um, Esther Williams um, tribute part of the movie in which she did an entire scene where everyone is diving into a pool and swimming into the pool Ooh. and doing synchronized swimming. Like, I, who else is doing that for us? Like, who else is like, do you know what you need to see? Is me doing a synchronized swimming with 300 people. You're very generous. <laughs> I don't know who else is so generous. She's so generous. That's, 
Yes. Sorry. That's just the note. I was just like, black is king is so much better than the haters. I don't want them to get the last word. Like Esther Williams tribute. Thank you for making sure we like focus, refocused on the abundance, the generosity, the magnanimity. The queen. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. And you know what? We're ignoring the haters on all those platforms. <laughs> Do we have haters? Um, you can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can help us to our show sustain as well. I don't know why I am on one tonight. Write it. No, I'm about to like get so many like emails and messages. Um, please uh, write us a review saying anything that you want on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. <laughs> um, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen, who might help us by removing some of our things today. <laughs> Music, or we might leave it all in. Music for today's show comes from Tunde, Lani Ron, and Mother Cyborg. Okay, girl, go pee.